So as we move past the letters to the churches, those seven letters on that postal route, the seven letters that all had one single theme, church, be the church. But before we move to the heavenlies that is found in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we must stop for a moment. We need to check our compass. We need to make sure that we have our heading right. We need to make sure that we once again tune our hearts, our minds, and our souls homeward. Homeward meaning verse 1 of chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. Because what is told to us in this chapter today, what we are about to read, to contemplate on, to think on, can be understood and can be known truly simply because it is a revelation of Jesus Christ. This isn't to say that we will ever know God fully, because we will spend all eternity basking in the glory of who He is. We will live for all eternity as Christian hedonists, striving after that which brings us the greatest joy. But that doesn't mean that we can't know God truly, as D.A. Carson has so rightly said. And when I say truly... What he meant, and what I mean, is as God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And saints, we must strive to know God. A.W. Tozer once famously said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if you want to desire just a practical demonstration on how well, how little we have been taught to think about God, pull up almost any teaching on this section of Scripture, and you're going to find men waxing eloquently about that open door, about being caught up into heaven and what that means, about what John meant by being in the Spirit. They will talk about those four beings spoken of in verses 7 and 8, about the crowns given to those saints in verse 10, and how all of this is for us. Because for them... Chapter 4 is the escape plan for the elect of God. For those that love God and want to glorify Him through their lives by getting out as fast as they possibly can. And this truth, this little thinking that we have been taught concerning God, it's relevant. And it's relevant to the full meaning of that saying that Tozer said. Because that sentence that I read, that was part of a larger thought, expressed in a paragraph. And here's that sentence within that paragraph by Tozer. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. And our spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Let that sink in. Our spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Tozer wasn't saying that God is not all-knowing or all-powerful. 
what he is saying is that the influence that the church has on its culture can't be any more impacting than its idea, its thoughts, its value of the God that it worships. And this is why what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Saints, can I ask you, stop and think about this for a second. How many of you, including me, actually live our lives for our great-grandchildren? How many of us actually think about the Christian legacy that we are founding today, thinking about the foundation that we are laying today for them to advance from? How many of us actually think that this may not be the last generation? See, we are so focused in on how bad we think things are and not focusing in on how good God is the one that is reigning and ruling at this very moment, and the one that may not return for a thousand years, do you not realize that every generation thought that the world could not get any worse than it is? Every generation. They all thought that the Lord was coming back in their generation. This was the thought of the first generation of Christians. And here we are, 2,000 years later, This is the same thought of the men and women that lived in the Middle Ages. And yet there was this group of saints whose idea of God was so big that they became those people that we call the Reformers. And they turned the entire world right side up in one generation. What will be said of us 500 years from now? Because we need to pull back those left-behind eyes that have enveloped our idea of God. We need to look full into the wonder of the God that desires us to see His Son, as spoken of in this chapter. This chapter is all centered on divine thoughts. And after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. The focal point of this chapter and of this verse, verse 1, is the same thing that is supposed to be the focal point of this entire book of Revelation. And in fact, the focal point of our entire lives. But if you're like me, you've been taught You've heard many sermons concerning how verse 1 of chapter 4, this is the rapture of the church. This is what's being explained here. Explain to us why this has to be the rapture of the church and how everything that takes place after chapter 6 of the book of Revelation all happens with the church no longer in the world. The open door is the focus of those sermons. The fact that John was in the Spirit is used to prove their point. And they will begin to then study on those four beings that are talked about and how they correspond to the four Gospels, which once again is used to bolster their claim that the church is now caught up in and is now in heaven. This is the focal point of chapter 4 for those people. And this is the importance of it for them. 
And this demonstrates what they think about God. But this chapter is not about that door or being in the Spirit or those four beings. This chapter, the focus of John in this chapter is on the first voice that John heard back in chapter 1. The one that sounded like a trumpet. See, we need to make sure that we have our logic hats on here to understand why that voice matters so much. Because if you were told that you were going to be given all the wealth of a person, who that person is would matter. Because if that person was a six-year-old, who cares? They don't have much. But if the person that told you that they're going to give you all their wealth was Mark Cuban, that would matter a little bit more. Who is speaking here makes a huge difference on what is being said. And everything that is said in chapter 4, everything that is seen in this chapter, it all revolves around one person, the truly important person. And this is why what you think when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because if you think little of him, then this chapter is about that open door, about those beings, about you getting out of this world without suffering or any persecution. The saints, who are you listening to? Who are you trusting in? You'll know who you're trusting in, and you'll know who you're listening to by who you fear. This is what Christ said in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. See, people can threaten to destroy you. They can kill you, but they can't do anything to the real you. God, on the other hand, and it's he who is commanding his slave John to come up here in order that he can be shown what is about to happen soon or after these things. Again, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. This then, before we move past this, brings, or brings to mind another one of those phrases that are thrown around in cultural Christianity. That we shouldn't be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. That's simply unbiblical, and it should be banished from our minds. The intent of our hearts should be the same as the intent of this chapter. We should be so heavenly-minded that we will then be some earthly good. And this truth is pointed out in yet another biblical exchange that Jesus had. There in Matthew 16, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord. And let me stop there. <clears throat> Peter wasn't rebuking the Lord because he actually thought he knew more than Christ. He was rebuking the Lord because he loved Jesus, and he didn't want to see anything bad happen to him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Here, Christ has his focus completely on God. 
because God is the most important thing about him. And in contrast, Peter has his mind focused on earthly things, setting his eyes on himself. And our chapter here, chapter 4, is all about being heavenly minded. It's all centered on the one who is salvation, who is our redeemer, and to really think on him. If you're really going to think about him and be heavenly minded, there are a couple things that are required of you. The first one is you need to be in him. Are you in Christ? Have you followed Christ in obedience? Do you see the blackness of your sin and know that you are an enemy of God? Do you feel the weight of the reality of the heaven that is being spoken of in this chapter? Do you know that you're going to have to stand before this God and have to answer for your sin? And do you see Christ? The one who had to die, who was raised on the third day in order to fulfill scriptures, in order to appease the wrath of God against your sin. The one who commands that you worship him by repenting, confessing, and then following him in death. And repent means that you see your sin and you desire, and the desires of your sinful heart as sin. And then you change direction and you go after God. Confess means to publicly announce that the regeneration that has happened in your heart already. To say that Christ is lovely, beautiful, that he is your Savior. And then you have to follow him in his death, which means that you obey his commands. And the first one that he gives is that you do the first things. Repent, confess, and then be baptized. And you don't have salvation if you're unwilling to obey the Lord and do these things. But if you have done these things, if you are trusting in Christ, then you have been saved and you are in him. Which then brings us to a second thing that we are required to know, that we are required to rightly understand. If we're going to understand this section of Scripture, you need to rightly understand salvation. Because we are the redeemed of Christ, and we tell people, you need to be saved. But then very often we can flounder when we're asked, well, what does that mean? What is salvation? Whose is it? And what exactly is it? Because people often think, we can think, that salvation is ours. When in fact, Revelation 7.10 tells us it's not. Revelation 7.10 tells us salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, which is reinforced by Ephesians 2.8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that any can boast. Salvation is a once-and-done process that consists of a threefold process, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, great demonstration of salvation and the threefoldness of it. There it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. 
by predestining us to the adoption of sons through Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. And because of verse 4 of Ephesians, we can rightly say, I was saved before God said, let there be light. And at the same time, every one of us practically know the moment or the day that we were saved. And that speaks to the sanctification that has happened and that is being worked out in us, in our salvation. Hebrews 10.10 is a great verse to demonstrate this truth. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. But then we're told that we will be saved. Romans 13.11 says, Do this, knowing the time that it's already the hour for you to waken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. And what is being spoken of there is the climax of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, given to us in chapters 21 and 22 of Revelation, where we see the glorification of our bodies in the eternal home with Him. The point of all of this is that we are to be heavenly-minded, because the open door that stood in heaven is open to us at this moment, because Christ is that open door. And we need to understand that while, while our glorification will happen in the future, in our perspective, it's just part of the eternal now of God. It has already happened. This is part of the reality of being in Christ that we are now tapped into because the Holy Spirit is living inside of us. See, John has seen the risen, reigning King Jesus as told to us in, in chapter 1. And here in this chapter, he's going to see him again. Only this time he's brought into a different dimension. Not a different time and not a different reality. He sees that open door in heaven and he's told, come up here into the kingdom of heaven. And once he gets there, we are told in verse 2, immediately I was in the spirit and behold... A throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. Before we get all mystical, I want you to think about this. Remember where John was at, the Apostle John, what he was doing when this vision was given to him? Not just the vision of chapter 4, but the complete vision of the book of Revelation. Do you remember where he was at, what he was doing? Revelation 1.9 tells us, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus. You want to make a guess of where he's going to be at the conclusion of this vision? In heaven, sitting comfortably in a barca lounger, sitting on a nice, sipping on an iced tea? Nope. He's still on the island of Patmos still being persecuted because of the word of God and the witness of Jesus Christ. And secondly, everything that is spoken about in this book and in this chapter, everything that is revealed to us here has at least been hinted to before in the Bible. Most of it has already been described to us, at least in some detail. We are told, uh, what we're told of in verses 1 and 2 
It's been told to us before in Daniel chapter 7. In fact, Daniel chapter 7 is almost an exact parallel to the entire vision that is told to us of chapter 4. In fact, some commentators say that John was just plagiarizing Daniel when he wrote this. They will say that he was pulling from that Old Testament book, just like he did from Isaiah, and as he will from Ezekiel. But again, in saying that, they're proving what they're thinking of God. How do I know that? Because of verse 1 of chapter 1 again. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his slaves the things which must soon happen. And he indicated this by sending it through his angel to his slave, John. Because if this revelation is not God-given, then it is not a revelation of Jesus Christ. If John was just suffering from heat exhaustion because he was on the island of Patmos, or because he had bad pizza the last night before, and he had a dream that he then wrote down, which he then passed off as being from God, if this is what we truly believe, then we need to stop now, go home, and lock the doors, because God is a liar. But since this is a revelation of Jesus Christ from God, we need to take God at his word. So what are we to make of the similarities between the book of Daniel the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, and the book of Revelation. What John is being shown here is the same thing that Daniel was, was shown. The same thing that Ezekiel was shown. The same thing that Isaiah was shown. It's the same event shown to them hundreds of years apart. The same event that describes the fulfilling of the prophecy that is given back in Genesis 3.15. Yes, there are differences between what the prophets in the Old Testament saw and that which John sees, but the differences are all because of what occurred in that span of time, that thing that we know of as time between the Old Testament and the New. And the thing that we're to understand from all of this, the thing that we are to get, that we need to hold on to is that as uncertain as life may be, since there is a rock that is a firm foundation. God said of himself back in Malachi 3.6, he says, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. And he said of himself in Hebrews 13.8, the same thing. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Kind of like our salvation. The triumph that is spoken of in this chapter was never in question from the Old Testament moving forward because it has already happened. Let that sink in. There's no doubt about the future. There's no wondering, am I going to make it? Is good going to overcome? Our future is fixed. It's solid. And it's spoken of here in this chapter and how John opens this vision is important. Remember, again, there was no chapter breaks or verse numbers up until about a thousand years ago. Until then, words were used in, to break thoughts up. And this is what John is doing here in what we know as verse 1. He, here in chapter um, 4, verse 1, he's fulfilling the commission that was given back to him in chapter 1 by the one that he describes as having the voice like a trumpet. 
And what he has shown is important for us to understand. And that the things after these things that is spoken of, this is all a reference to what we know of as the last days. The same thing that was spoken of and shown to the Old Testament prophets. The last days that have already begun. That we are actually living in the last days, it's a biblical fact. Acts 2 says it clearly. In Acts chapter 2, we're told of the miraculous birthing of the church. When the Spirit descended like fire above the heads of the saints, and they spoke of the glories of God, in known languages, by the way, to those in Jerusalem. And there were those that witnessed the working of God and dismissed the work of God as a different sort of spirit. But Peter, taking his stand with eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what what was spoken through the prophet Joel, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. The same thing that's told to us in 1 Timothy 4.1. Spirit explicitly says that in the last days, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Same thing that's said in 1 Peter 1.20. In Hebrews 1, 2, in James 5, 3, in 1 John 2, 18, and Jude 18. We are in the last days. We don't have anything to look forward to in that way. And our understanding of the last days should never be dependent on the things that we see happening around us or in the Middle East or how people are acting. Because the ushering in of the last days is not dependent on anything within creation, but on God who stepped down into creation. Christ is just that big of a deal. He's not a ticket out of suffering. He's the reason that that temporal clock that we know of as time ticked backwards until the year zero and is now ticking forward. It's all because of Him. He's the demarcation line of the visions of the end times that were given to the Old Testament prophets and the vision of the end time that is now given to this New Testament disciple. And it's our understanding of how important Christ is in the economy of God that will determine how we view end times prophecy and even how we think of the kingdom of God that is spoken about as well. Because again, we can think the kingdom of God is to come. It can't be now because of how bad things are. It's something that we're supposed to look forward to. It's in the future. And this view, this thinking affects how we view the importance of our life now. How we actually live our life now. But how did Jesus view the kingdom of God? The one that his father had given to him. We're told in Mark 1 what he thought about the promised kingdom. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, verses 14 and 15. And to make the 
what he thought about the kingdom even clearer. We're told in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's him. And again, we're not the first saints or the only saints who have been confused about the kingdom of God or the end times. See, even after being with Christ for three years and watching his miracles, listening to his preaching and witnessing the crucifixion and then the resurrection of Christ, the disciples were still a bit confused about the kingdom. In Acts 1, we read of their questioning and ruling of that ruling reigning king. Verses 6 through 8 of chapter 1. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, It's not for you to know times or seasons which a father has been set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the end of the earth. In other words, what he told them, remember Deuteronomy 29, 29, and then believe in the one who the Spirit is going to testify about. And they didn't have the New Testament written yet. The Word of God is just that important as well. John has been commissioned in the same manner as the prophets of old. And like them, his responsibility is to proclaim the hidden reality of the purpose of God to his people, to you, in order that we can know what part we play in it is. In verse 1, we're told of the voice of the one who is, we know is Christ. And then in verse 2, we're told of a throne and of God sitting completely unaffected by creation. The one who is sitting firmly calmly on that throne. And then verse 3 describes the one that is sitting on that throne. And he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. He's described in verse 2 as like a jasper stone. Well, what does that mean? Well, we can know because of Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, because there he's described in this manner once again. Only there the meaning is finally given to us. There it tells us in Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like precious stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It's the imagery of the glory of God that is being described for us here. Something that we can never fully explain. See, we humans, when we're confronted with the glory and the holiness of God, we have nothing to compare it to. And words fail to accurately describe it. A great example can be found in Psalm 104, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist there saw God. He said, Bless Yahweh, O my soul. Oh, Yahweh, my God, you are very great. And there's the joy overflowing from a heart of a saint at the sight of God. And then he attempts to describe the magnificence that is God. Listen to his attempt at this. He says, you're clothed with splendor and majesty, wrapping yourself with light as a cloak. 
stretching out the heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beam of his upper chambers in the waters. He sets up the clouds to be his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes his angels the winds, his ministering flaming fire. In other words, everything that we've ever seen falls so short of the glory and holiness of God that we can't accurately describe what he is like. And then the other thing that's described as being around that throne was a rainbow, which harkens back to the mercy of God on his creation. And the reason that the rainbow is here is very important. The jasper stone, that speaks to the holiness of God and the glory that is due his name. And because God is holy, only because God is holy, only the righteous and holy can remain in his presence. And that can only happen because part of his holiness is demonstrated as merciful grace in the rainbow that is Christ. And what is the effect of that mercy and grace? Verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Do you really think that these men deserve to be wearing white garments and have golden crowns? And who these 24 elders are, this is not the important thing. There are 24 elders sitting around the throne of God. That's the amazing thing. Think about it. These men are just like you and me. Do we deserve to be sitting around the throne of God? I know I don't. And yet... Because of the one who is speaking to John, because of the one whose voice is described like a trumpet, because of the one who's sitting on the throne itself, and because of the one that is spoken of in verse 5, there they are. In verse 5, and out of the throne comes flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Remember the meaning of the seven spirits of God was told to us in Isaiah 11, chapter 11, verse 2, which reads, The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom, understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge, and the fear of Yahweh. And, the under, and then understanding why this scene in heaven is being revealed to John and then to us is also important. And God sitting on the throne as told to us in verse 2. And now we are told of the seven spirits of God which are before his throne, which we know are God himself. And then after that, John's attention is then directed to what is surrounding the throne in those seven lamps. Verse 6. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. Well, what is meant by this sea of glass? We need to understand what is being shown to us here. This is really relevant to what is, what is happening. See, there's a sea of glass here. But later in chapter 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there is no longer any sea. So understanding the typology of the sea is important in understanding what is being revealed to John and to us here. The expanse that describes the sea here is the same thing that Ezekiel saw in chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. 
The, the sea in the Old Testament always was referred to as the dwelling place of the evil one. Isaiah 51, 9 through 11 says that. Psalm 74, verses 12 through 15 says that. And Revelation 13, 1 says this. The dragon stood on the, sea, the sand of the seashore. Then I saw the beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So no matter how calm or beautiful that sea is, the one that is before the throne of God, it's not a place that we want to hang out at. And this is why there is no sea spoken of in the new heaven and the new earth. But the sea is before the throne of God. And we can get confused by this because we could be thinking, wait a minute, I thought that God can't have evil before his presence. What does this mean? And yet we know that he does because of the account of Job. But the sea being seen here, given to us here, is done so that in order that we can know that the one that is sitting on that throne has complete dominion and control of it. And nothing more is then ever even said of that sea that John saw. It's acknowledged as being there, but then the focus of John moves back to that throne Verse 6 again, in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, the second creature like a calf, the third creature had a face like that of a man, the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one having, having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they don't cease to say, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So the meaning of these four beings has been debated for centuries. The interesting thing is, is that we will debate who they are because they sound strange to us and we can't figure them out when we just completely gloss over what they say. But Jerome associated the Gospels with these, with these living creatures. He said that Matthew was the man, Mark was the lion, Luke was the calf, John was the eagle. And there are similarities and even differences with the vision that was given to Ezekiel and Isaiah here. Others will tell us that these four beings, that they're just representative of creation itself. And they act as a representation of God. And that's what the Romans 1.20 means. For since the creation of the world is invisible attribute, both its eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which has been made, so that they are without excuse. But who or what they are really isn't the relevant thing here. It's what these four beings are saying that is the relevant thing. Because if they are representative of the entirety of the beings that are around the throne of God, it's what they are singing that matters. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Isaiah was taken to this throne and he he revealed the same thing in his revelation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 6 of Isaiah, he tells us of the heavenly beings that he sees that surround the throne, singing to God this song. There, he says, 
they sang, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Verse 3. Again, striking similarities, but then there's differences as well. And the similarity is found in the fact that in both of them, they're singing of his uh, premier attribute of God, his holiness. But then there's differences. The angelic beings that were seen by Isaiah, they say that God, Yahweh, is, is the, of Yahweh of hosts, is holy, holy, holy. But then they say the whole earth is full of his glory. And the reason for that is that because Isaiah had been overcome because he had witnessed the glory of God fill the temple. And the angelic beings were just correcting him and saying, Nuh-uh, son of man. It's not just the temple that is full of his glory. The temple can't contain his glory. The entire world is full of his glory. And here, in this vision, John hears these angelic beings proclaiming the holiness of God in a more exacting manner. Here, they're speaking of the Trinitarian holiness that is God, the one whose voice is like a trumpet, the one who is sitting on the throne, and the one who is coming from the throne in the seven spirits. Lord, God, Almighty. And then the angelic beings begin speaking in a more specific way concerning the one that, is, that this is a revelation of. They say that he was. And this is what we're told of Christ in John 1. He was in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with, John, with God, John 1, 1 and 2. The one who is. Christ said of himself in John chapter 8, verses 56 through 58, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw and was glad. And the Jews said to him, You're not yet 50 years old, and you say that Abraham saw you? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Christ is the eternal I am. And every instance in the Old Testament that men saw God, it was Christ that they saw. He is the eternal I am, which is why he is ruling and reigning right now. And then we're told that he's the one to come. John 14, 1 through 3. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it weren't so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare you a place. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also be. Do you remember me telling you that the salvation process was threefold? It was it is, and it will be. Our salvation is firmly fixed in Christ. Our salvation is not ours. It's His. Living inside of us. And this is the magnificence of the God that was sitting now on this throne, who will one day return in judgment to usher in the consummation of the fullness of his kingdom. And when these angelic beings sing this holy praise to God, verses 9 through 11 are the reaction of all creation around his throne. 
When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Saints, there are practical reasons why this vision was given to John here and then told to pass on to us. To pass on to the saints living in that time and then to saints of all time. Because life was hard for them. They were suffering persecution. And they were going to suffer more. And we all know that life can be hard. That there are things that will happen in our life that is going to test our faith. That will cause us to wonder if God is really on the throne. Saints, death will be the dark mark that will stain our lives. At least on more than one occasion. And this is why we need to see the reality that we're being shown. Why we need to think rightly about, about God, because we need to see the reality that God is sitting on the throne, completely confident, completely calm, and completely in control. That sea contains our mortal enemy, and it's at his feet. He has overcome the devil. He has overcome sin. He has overcome death. And this truth should make a difference to us. It should, make us. it should make all the difference to us. Because God is on the throne, we can live in complete confidence that nothing can happen to us unless our God says that it can. That sea that contains our mortal enemy is at his feet which means that Satan is at his beck and call. And saints, we need to now live in the exalted position that we have been placed in. We need to overcome. We need to occupy. We need to fill the world with the truth of who God is. And instead of worrying about what is this world going to be like when our kids grow up, I just feel so bad for them. We need to be training and preparing our children to slay dragons, to defeat enemies, because we are more than conquerors in Christ. And this is why what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because we are commanded to make disciples, and the disciples that we make need to see Christ. They need to know Christ. And we need to be showing them Christ, pointing to, at, pointing to Christ and pointing them continually to him, commanding them, look, look into his wonderful face. Our thoughts about God need to be big, really big. And then and even then, they're going to be too small.
but it's when our thoughts about God are big that we will then begin to do big things in the Lord like the reformers did. It's when our thoughts and our, of our, and our security in Him are founded on the reality of Him that we as a church will begin to impact our culture. We need to start thinking, to start acting, and start believing that our God truly is holy, holy, holy. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Saints, reread this chapter. Dwell on the reality of the God that is revealed in this chapter that is sitting completely calm and comfortable on that throne. Because that God is big. Really big. And more than that, he's holy, holy, holy. Let's pray.